0: Welcome to the audio version of the Platinum Asset Management Quarterly Report for the period to the 31st of December 2019. For disclaimers, please visit our website www.platinum.com.au and look under Terms and Conditions for more information. In this episode, we'll cover a number of things, starting with Andrew Clifford's macro report, a brief summary of the performance of the flagship Platinum International Fund. Claes Malinsky will talk about how he thinks about investing in his unhedged fund report. We'll look at the situation in Asia with July. Brief comments around what's been going on in the UK in Nick Dvorak's report. Improvements in corporate governance in Japan from Scott Gilchrist's report and a stock, a healthcare stock we've been buying there from the healthcare report by Bianca. A commentary on luxury brands by Nick Markovich. And revisit what's going on at Alphabet in light of the CEO changes from our technology team. So starting with the macro overview by Andrew Clifford, and really what we want to talk about here is whether interest rates will be a tailwind or a headwind for equities in 2020. In our recent September update, we discussed the strong consensus that had developed among investors and commentators that interest rates would remain at low levels for some time to come, what is known as the lower for longer view. Whenever there's such strong agreement amongst investors, it's important to consider the alternative. As we noted in the last report, long-term interest rates have fallen to the same levels, or even lower, than those experienced in prior periods of significant weakness in the global economy, such as the 2012 European Sovereign Crisis or the 2016 Chinese Investment Slowdown. While global manufacturing is certainly weakened and there's significant political uncertainty, we must ask whether the environment is really that weak to justify such low levels of interest rates. Employment in major economies suggests otherwise, with substantial jobs being added in the US economy, European and Japanese, even despite its declining working age population, has added 1 million jobs in the last five years. While employment is a lagging indicator of economic activity in the short term, the numbers suggest we've experienced a period of relatively robust global growth, and one that's not consistent with such low interest rates. Many investors might observe that interest rates have been low for much of the last 30 years, reaching new lows each cycle, irrespective of the severity of the downturn. The answer then is simply that interest rates do not reflect the level of economic activity, but rather they reflect the interest rate policies of the world's central banks. And with official interest rates below zero in Japan and Europe, the limitations of such policies are coming to the fore. The central banks can simply not continue to reduce rates to ever more negative levels as depositors, where feasible, will seek to leave the banking system and potentially threaten its viability. So as central banks either close to or having reached the end of the road on lower interest rates, it's interesting to note that world central banks are calling for an increase in government spending and fiscal deficits to support economic activity. The ECB, the BOJ and the Reserve Bank of Australia all made calls in late 2019 for the respective governments to increase fiscal stimulus. The effectiveness of low and negative rates in encouraging economic activity and the potential side effects, such as increasing indebtedness, are also under discussion. In December, Sweden's central bank, the Riksbank, increased its repo rate from minus 0.25 to 0% in spite of a slowing economy. They quoted concerns about the negative effects that may arise from long periods of negative rates. And it would not surprise us to see further discussion around the effectiveness of these low rates, with central banks ultimately looking for a way out of the corner they've painted themselves into. The immediate issue facing central banks as they try to normalise rates is the level of indebtedness in their economies that these policies have encouraged. And it's interesting to note that such such a strong consensus on lower for longer has developed at a time when central banks are signalling that current interest rate policies may have run their course. Now, while a move to normalising interest rate structures may be a long way off, other factors may also lead to a pick-up in activity in 2020 and beyond, and this could lead to an uptick in inflationary pressures and interest rates. With encouragement from central banks to increase spending and deficits, it's hard to imagine that governments will not follow this recommendation. The US has already undertaken significant fiscal expansion through their 2018 tax cuts, and the deficit is running around 6% of GDP. Nevertheless, the markets are happy to finance this debt for the moment at interest rates of less than 2%, and with concerns around the impact of trade war and an election year underway, an additional round of stimulus is conceivable. China's fiscal deficit has also increased substantially and is also a similar 6% of GDP, due to their tax cuts and spending initiatives over the last 18 months. Given the Chinese government's stated desire to restrain the growth of debt across the economy, Policymakers are probably somewhat constrained on additional fiscal measures. This leaves Europe where the fiscal deficit is around 1% of GDP and Japan where it's fallen to about 3% as the most likely sources of significant additional fiscal stimulus. As we discussed last quarter, France and the Netherlands have announced tax cuts and during the December quarter, Japan passed a supplementary budget of 2% of its GDP. Today, both Europe and Japan run the world's largest current account surpluses in absolute dollar terms, which means these economies are significant sources of funding for activity across the rest of the world. If fiscal stimulus results in European and Japanese excess savings being applied within their own economies in any significant way, it will result in greater competition for financial resources around the globe and result in upward pressure on long-term interest rates. In addition to the competition for financial resources, any stimulus will come at a time when labour markets in major economies are relatively tight, and this could create some degree of wage inflation and a further source of upward pressure on interest rates. Finally, we saw last quarter a promise of a Phase 1 trade deal between the US and China to be signed in the new year. Based on the events of the last 18 months, even if the deal was signed, we shouldn't expect the trade issue will be set aside completely. Nevertheless, it's a clear retreat by the US administration from its most extreme position on trade. The UK general election result reduces uncertainty in both the UK and European economies, with the UK exiting the European Union in a more orderly fashion. This should also result in improvement in business confidence globally. So with the consensus that interest rates are not going to rise anytime soon, it's not inconceivable that the economic environment improves during 2020, through fiscal stimulus and less uncertainty around issues such as trade and Brexit. Indeed, we would not be surprised to see rates moving higher over the next 18 to 24 months, back to levels seen at the end of 2018, when US Treasuries peaked above 3%. Now, there are problems remaining that may derail such an outcome. But most notably, the US election process has the potential to create significant noise and uncertainty. Domestic political process, such as those in Hong Kong and elsewhere, look difficult to resolve and could potentially escalate further. And since publishing the report, we've also had the, uh, the news around the coronavirus, which is causing some concern temporarily at present in markets. Nevertheless, our suggestion is that rates may return to where they were a little over 12 months ago. At that time, the world did not look so different to Today. Now, while such a discussion about interest rates rarely makes for exciting listening, it's currently the critical issue for investors in all asset classes. And there are three ways interest rates are impacting markets today. The first two are perennial features of markets, and the third is peculiar to today. The most obvious of these is the role that interest rates play in the valuation of assets. The valuation of an asset is a function of future cash flows it will produce at the appropriate risk-adjusted interest rate. And this is true for all assets, whether listed companies, rental property, toll roads, government bonds. In theory, the lower interest rates are, the higher the value that should be ascribed to an asset for a given set of expected future cash flows. And the impact of ever-falling interest rates has been a significant tailwind for the performance of all asset classes globally for over 30 years. This phenomenon we've all experienced, not just in our investment portfolios, but in the prices of residential property in most markets. While there may be questions on the efficacy of low rates and economic growth, there is no question regarding the impact of low interest rates on the performance of asset markets. Of course, this role of interest rates in pricing of assets is one of the most basic concepts in finance, but it's worth remembering because as rates reach their bottom, we will lose this tailwind, and it could potentially become a headwind. While some postulate that if rates stay low, valuations will continue to head higher, the experience in Japan where rates have been below 2% for 20 years, was that the average valuation of the market halved. The second impact of the low rates is in the real world, where the hurdle rate for real investment is lowered. This is most readily observed today in the willingness of investors to fund new projects in e-commerce, software, biotech and other high-growth areas, where poor short-term returns on investment are accepted for the potential of a significant long-term payoff. But in many cases, the amount of capital invested in an area will drive down the attractive returns investors seek in the first place. Uber's ride-sharing business is an interesting example where a company, despite achieving a leading position in a new e-commerce field, faces a continual rise of new entrants, which would simply put down to the generous funding these competitors have already received. Only once these funds have been lost or access removed will rationality prevail. A similar experience occurred for investors in U.S. shale oil sector where plentiful capital ultimately led to very poor returns and consequently companies are now struggling to receive funding for such ventures. The low cost of money sees funds attracted by the most exciting opportunity of the moment, ultimately driving down returns. Simply put, the availability of cheap money actually changes the future cash flow of the industry and thus the valuation. This premise fits neatly with our approach of avoiding the crowd as any sector or business idea attracting significant capital today is likely to have a difficult future. The third impact has been to push investors to seek returns elsewhere, including the stock market. Now, we've previously discussed that this occurred at a time when there were many reasons to discourage investors from the market, from global politics to the disruption of traditional business models. As a result, investors entering the market have either sought defensive names like consumer staples or infrastructure, utilities and property, or high growth areas such as e-commerce, software, payments and biotech, regarded as relatively immune to these issues. Investors simultaneously avoided businesses facing uncertainty, or cyclicals, and in particular those impacted by the trade war such as China, automobiles and electronics. And what this led to is a significant divergence in valuations, with growth in defensive stocks trading at high levels and the rest of the market trading at generally more attractive valuations. A move to higher interest rates will be particularly challenging for these highly valued sectors. But on the back of optimism around the US-China trade negotiations and the UK general election, markets have entered 2020 on an enthusiastic note. It may continue for some time, but if it is the presage of better economic times, it's hard to see how long-term interest rates can remain suppressed. Given how important the higher-valued defensive and growth stocks have been in driving index levels, a period of softer returns may be ahead in the broad market. So following from the macro overview, just briefly looking at the uh, commentary for the Platinum International Fund for the quarter, the fund delivered a strong absolute return over the quarter and the year, however lagged performance of global equity markets. The fund's long positions returned 28% for the year in Aussie terms, which was slightly ahead of the broader market, with returns earned from positions in Asia, US and Japan, all ahead of their respective market returns, the Japanese stocks returning 42% over the year, with only our European results slightly tra- return slightly trailing their market. Our key contributors to performance over both the year and the quarter were our semiconductor stocks, reflecting an easing in trade tensions, sign of increased data spending in the US, and good sales of 5G mobile handsets in China. Key stocks in this area included Samsung Electronics, Micron, Skyworks. Microchip and Intel. Other strong performers included a number of our Chinese investments such as Ping An Insurance, Antisports, sports Chai Power and ZTO Express. Over the quarter we increased our net exposure from 73% to 84%. In large part due to short positions falling from 16% of the fund down to 9. The most significant component of that being the closure of index shorts early in the quarter. So we mentioned the macro report, after such a strong year in markets, an element of caution is warranted in the short term. Having said that, we remain very comfortable with our portfolio positioning. Current valuations continue to remain attractive in comparison with market averages, and both our quantitative and qualitative assessments lead us to believe that our portfolio is more profitable and faster growing than the international universe of stocks that we cover. So now Clay's report on the unhedged fund, And Clay talks about giving some context to the fund's holdings and its performance by reinstating or restating Platinum's approach and philosophy to investing in markets. Investors will often tell you that their ultimate goal is to purchase companies at prices that are below what they're worth. And while this is true, we think it's an unhelpful statement. The interesting question is what situations lead to companies becoming undervalued and can this be systematically repeated? The value of a listed company is very much in the eye of the beholder, and one of the largest determinants of its valuation at any point in time depends on the nature of the investor narrative surrounding it. In short, a company's valuation is heavily influenced by investor psychology. To give you a past example is Microsoft. In the year 2000, Microsoft traded at 55 US dollars a share, or 50 times its earnings. 10 years later, Microsoft traded at 25 dollars a share, or a mere 10 times earnings. So what had changed? While the fundamentals of Microsoft's core business of selling the Windows operating system and enterprise tool like Office were the same, what had changed was the narrative. In the year 2000, Microsoft was seen as a fortress software provider who was going to power the internet age. In 2010, however, the narrative focused on Microsoft missing out on the smartphone revolution by not owning the operating system that would power these devices. Today, Microsoft's narrative has again turned positive. Its price has risen sixfold from these depressed levels of 2010, with investors now excited about its Azure cloud computing division. So our investment approach is based around identifying and targeting situations where investor psychology is likely to cause companies to become mispriced. The major examples include companies that are facing t- temporary uncertainty, When times are good, investors naturally extrapolate that success into the future and are comfortable paying high prices. However, there's a problem the process goes into reverse. Investors focus intensely on the current issue, which creates low expectations, and with that, low stock prices. The second example is industries going through great change. Companies in these areas are prone to mispricing simply because it's difficult for investors to accurately predict a future or price a future that looks very different to today. Focusing on change is also key as the history of stock markets show truly large gains have been made in companies that benefited from long-term structural change. And this shows up in the source of the fund's returns for the year with the major contributions coming from semiconductor holdings as per the International Fund. These investments are a great illustration of the benefit of taking advantage of temporary uncertainty. In 2018, as the global economy slowed, the semiconductor industry suffered a mini-industry recession. Smartphone sales in China fell 20%. Large data center providers such as Amazon Web Services reduced IT purchases, and distributors ran down inventories, all of which reduced the demand for semiconductors in the short term. And the stocks fell sharply in response. Skyworks, Micron, and Microchip fell around 40 to 50%. Investors at the time were completely focused on how much worse the current downturn could get. So the appeal to us of investing in these companies was that while there was uncertainty in the short term, it was clear their businesses would grow in the long term. There is little question that cloud computing and artificial intelligence will fuel demand for DRAM and NAND memory, and consumers will buy 5G phones. As investors have begun to worry less about the cycle and focus more on the future opportunity, semiconductor stocks have risen dramatically. Other major com- Tributors during the year included companies going through major change in their respective industries and benefiting from this. And one example is the Chinese parcel delivery company ZTO. In terms of parcels delivered, ZTO is now the world's largest parcel express company and should deliver around 12 billion parcels in 2019. Their business benefits from several favourable trends. Firstly, the rise of e-commerce continuing to fuel both the growth of parcel volumes and complexity as merchants and consumers demand faster deliveries and services like returns handling. In addition, the sheer scale of the delivery network ZTO has built in consumer parcels should allow it to service the large B2B parcel market in China over time. Overall, parcel express networks are becoming more important to the economy and should allow ZTO to grow its business profitably for years to come. Examples of recent purchases in the fund include Takeda, which we'll talk about later, but is a company going through significant internal change, or Spirit Airlines, a company which has seen a recent temporary weather-related disruption uh, after a series of hurricanes affecting its main hub in Florida during the peak Easter period last year. So since late 2018, the dominant narrative in stock markets was a fear of a broad-based economic recession being imminent. And that led to the shift towards the more defensive or high-growth companies discussed in Andrew's uh, report earlier. But there are signs that the narrative on economic picture is turning. And we think it's interesting to observe that the manufacturing sector of the global economy has been in recession for over a year. And the fear that this would spill over to the consumer side has not yet materialized. We note the permanent employment and wages growth in uh, Europe and the US. We think we're past the peak of the tariffs and trade war between China and the US. And activity in some of the hardest hit sectors of the economy, such as semiconductors and Chinese auto sales, is starting to improve. Now, importantly, our investments are not based on macro forecasts, but we believe we're well positioned to benefit from any improvement in investor confidence in this economic environment. And with starting valuation levels across the portfolio still relatively low, and investor sentiment still far from jubilant, we can be quite optimistic about future returns. So now Joe Lai talking about Asia, just touching on uh, some of the issues in Asia. And we've seen in the last um, recent period, obviously the trade war plaguing Asian markets, but it looks like it's finally seeing some resolution. And we've also seen the Hong Kong protests continuing throughout the quarter, which is a complex situation, probably most likely rooted in severe wealth disparity, lack of opportunities for the youth, and perhaps missteps made by the Hong Kong authorities. And with these structural issues, it's likely this protest on the East could persist for some time. But from an investment perspective, the impact is relatively minor. Hong Kong is only 3% of the Chinese economy, and there seems little prospect of this unrest spilling over to the mainland. In the Asia Fund, we carry no exposure to assets directly linked to the Hong Kong economy. But it's turbulence and macroeconomic uncertainties that often provide rare opportunities to acquire good and strong businesses at exceptional prices for the long term. So we move beyond the issues and focus on Asian economies, which will continue to grow simply by catching up to the productivity levels of more developed countries to the point they'll be too big to ignore. In 10 years time, three Asian economies, China, India and Indonesia, should rank amongst the top five economies in the world in terms of economic output. The key focus for us is to find domestically oriented companies that can effectively tap into the resilient growth trajectory. So some of the themes and companies in the Asia Fund include the best life, best in class life insurance companies in China, such as AIA Group and Ping An Insurance. This is a sector where China is under penetrated and we expect the best players to take the lion's share of this growing market as people seek to protect their emerging wealth. We invest in several internet companies that we think are industry champions with large underpenetrated markets to tap into, growing by at least 20% a year. And these include the Tinder of China, Momo, the Uber Eats of China, Meituan Jiangping, and the Bookings.com of China, Trip.com. We own a range of innovative domestic healthcare companies supplying or seeking to supply the latest in medical devices, immunotherapy and gene therapy in a grossly underserved Chinese market. These companies have world-class products. Some of the Chinese companies are working with reputable Western companies, while others have acquired the necessary technologies or invested heavily in R&D. And while China has a long way to go to catch up to the level of healthcare provisioning required. We see a nascent market and a ramp-up of medical coverage, which will create an enormous market in time for the companies with good products that are well-positioned. And in India, we have exposure to telecom companies, including Reliance Industries. Investment in telecom infrastructure is a game-changer in India. The problem has been that tariffs are too cheap, with customers paying just two dollars a month on average for unlimited access to the Internet. Now that the industry is consolidated, there are only three prior players left, and they're all raising prices. We expect a dramatic improvement in profitability, which should be favorable for the companies that we're invested in. In Korea, we like semiconductors. There are only three memory chip producers in the world, and demand for these products continues to grow, especially with the advent of 5G, iPhone 11, Internet of Things, and the cloud. While the industry had been oversupplied, the recent reductions in capacity set things up well and Samsung Electronics is a classic example here. And finally in Vietnam and Philippines these economies have been beneficiaries of the US China trade dispute. Their incomes are still very low and growing and economic prospects are improving. We hold positions in two Vietnamese companies and a couple of Filipino ones also. Now over in Europe uh just hearing from Nick Dvornak uh very briefly uh you know he talks about the the major developments in markets over the quarter being uh strong PMIs in the US and China, fueling hopes that the industrial recession in Europe may soon end, the partial uh, trade deal uh, settlement in the US and China, uh, which produce, produces less disruption to business and trade. But importantly for Europe, the Conservative Party won a strong parliamentary majority in the UK general election. And For financial markets, this eliminated the disturbing prospect of a Corbyn government while promising a solution to Brexit-related uncertainty that has disrupted business and financial decision-making alike. These developments signal improving economic prospects and reduced uncertainty, and this was a favourable backdrop for equity markets. Particularly, our best-performing positions were businesses with significant operations in the UK, such as Bank of Ireland, Ryanair and property company Foxton's. Investors had fled these stocks when Boris Johnson replaced Theresa May as Prime Minister. Johnson's assent seemed to promise more acrimony and less compromise in negotiations with the exasperated Europeans while doing little to secure the necessary support from within his own party. As fears of a no-deal Brexit escalated, subsequent signs of pragmatism on both sides were disregarded. Within months, Johnson had not only secured a revised deal from the Europeans but a resounding mandate to get Brexit done from the electorate. Realisation set in that while he may not deliver the outcome investors would ideally like, Nor will he deliver the outcomes they most fear, and prevailing valuations had largely reflected the latter. Now over in Japan, we're seeing improving corporate governance, and Scott Gilchrist talks about this multi-decade arc of improvement. The current stable domestic political environments leading to further improvements. The past poor behaviour of the Japanese corporate system has meant large amounts of the massive domestic savings pool have flowed to more attractive opportunities overseas. But there are now practical examples of change underway at early adopters like sorry, Hitotchi, Hitachi and NEC. And more recently, companies like Toshiba, Sony and Olympus have also changed course. In some cases, it required dramatic external pressure, such as we saw at Lixil and talked about in our June 2019 Japanese quarterly report. But half of the stock market has only been listed since 1990. And the behavior of the younger entities is generally much better than the legacy group. We're seeing positive momentum in the record levels of dividend payments, which have been growing rapidly, share buybacks at record levels and growing quickly. Corporate profit margins have risen over the last decade, and corporate balance sheets remain strong despite higher payouts, leaving room for dividends to continue to rise. M&A is also at record high levels. Following the ETO review in 2014, a Corporate Governance Code and Stewardship Code were published, and these extensive documents gave broad and deep but non-binding recommendations for improvement. While compliance has been slow, discussions are now underway to make these key provisions legally binding. A broker once, one broker describes the current status of the Japanese stock market as being in the pantheon of great turning points like 1985, 89, 97, 2003, and 2012. It may be a reasonable assessment if these current trends continue. The most powerful impetus is that economic incentives are now generally aligned. Interest rates are effectively zero, so pension funds, insurance companies and households need higher dividend streams, which of course requires further improvement in corporate margins, improved corporate performance and higher payout ratios. Domestic investors, foreign investors, the bureaucracy, the government and management are aligned towards similar outcomes. The regional threats are a further significant impetus. A less discussed problem is the low level of domestic consolidation. Japan doesn't need seven photocopier and printer companies. They should probably cease fax machine production. Eight camera companies is discordant with global industrial structures. And there are still too many car companies in Japan, although the industry is relatively consolidated compared to the 200 electric car companies in China. So we see general racial change widely evident now across Japan. The 1980s bubble area has faded and current realities are permeating behaviors in the economy. So there are four defining aspects of this market. The bear market is now three decades stale. The overall valuation of markets near the lows of its historical range. The valuation dispersion is at the widest point of its range. And the market composition continues to change with 50% of companies being listed since 1990 and more than 50% of corporate profits earned overseas. And this presents a wide range of investment opportunities. In many ways, this current setup looks like a once-in-a-generation ge- opportunity in Japan, and the current trajectory is very positive. Now, one of the examples of a company that we invest in, in recently in Japan uh, in the quarter is uh, Takeda. But I'll take the commentary from Bianca, who runs the health fund. and She's been talking about the change that Takeda has been working on for a couple of years with a non-Japanese management team in charge. This company is no stranger to acquisitions and has had tremendous success in in the past, but the future will not feature diabetes, opting to prioritize other diseases instead. This shows that pharma companies are not afraid to change course, which inevitably involves acquisitions, but also significant divestments, and the latter is often overlooked by investors. Takeda's recent acquisition of Shire is accelerating its much-needed transformation. The company became very stale. Its last global drug launch before the launch of its successful inflammatory bowel antibody vedolizumab for the treatment of ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease in 2014 was its diabetes drug Actos in 1999, a stunning 15-year gap. This fact alone highlights the need for a serious R&D overhaul, and indeed that's what has and continues to occur. Today Takeda Resembles a truly global operating biotech company embracing external partnerships and global product launches, rather than product launches for different geographic regions. Via Shire, Takeda now has a plasma-derived therapy business that will finally receive a serious budget. Innovation is coming through, and there are accelerating opportunities. Now, Nick Markovich in the consumer team has written a piece called Luxury Brands Dilemma, Growth and Exclusivity. Trade in luxury goods dates back five millennia to the route between the Indus Valley and Mesopotamia. Later, much of the spending of elite of ancient Rome went towards the importation of exotic products like silk, precious stones, spices and ivory from the Far East. But perhaps the most storied item in the ancient world was purple dye, owing to the extreme difficulty of its manufacture. Each ounce of Tyrian dye required the mucus of 250,000 Phoenician sea snails, which had to be delicately extracted and then aged in vats. The final dye was worth three times its weight in gold, and its production and sale was monopolised by the state Alexander the Great's motivations in pursuing a seven-month siege to take Tyre likely included the capture of this resource. Later, purple silk robes became the hallmark of Roman emperors, and unauthorized use of the color was punished by death. While the nobility nobility managed to keep a stranglehold on purple, other exotic goods were freely available to anyone with enough money. Much to the chagrin of the remaining elites, this increasingly included the newly minted bourgeoisie, for example merchants and financiers, As aspirational consumption became widespread, the word Lusso, luxury, entered the Italian lexicon to denigrate the vulgar spending habits of the nouveau riche. Today's luxury brands are still trying to manage these same contradictory forces as they seek to accommodate new waves of Chinese middle class consumers and generate billions of dollars of new sales, whilst maintaining a facade of exclusivity. Louis Vuitton, Chanel and Hermes have written today's luxury playbook, collectively accounting for $30 billion of consumer spending. And the tactics they utilise include price discipline. They create a sense of steady value via rigid price controls, never discounting unpopular products and raising prices on iconic lines every year. Like the Tyrians, they've maintained a monopoly on sale of their key products to limit exposure to wholesale partners who could discount product to drive sales volumes. They artificially restrict supply. Now, while the Tyrians actually possessed a scarce resource, Luxury brands create an illusion of scarcity by mildly restricting the volume of their lowest price iconic products. For example, the cheapest Hermes Birkin bag at ten thousand US dollars is not available to walk ins off the street. To buy a birkin one must work for it through spending some time on a mandatory waiting list while buying other peripheral items like silk ties. While not quite equivalent to building a Tyrian causeway under constant bombardment, this small hardship makes the ultimate prize seem a rare object of desire, despite the reality that Hermes sells tens of thousands of these per year. Ancillary categories. So instead of reducing prices on core products to target wider audiences, most luxury brands sell more mass-produced products in tangential categories with lower price points. And although the price point is lower, brands maintain the illusion of luxury by pricing at a significant premium to the category average. For example, Chanel has a booming cosmetics business, sitting comfortably alongside its couture and leather goods business at significantly lower price points, where branded sunglasses are one of the most commonly purchased luxury items. And style proliferation. Brands that become large can avoid ubiquity by offering a multitude of styles. Louis Vuitton, for example, has 900 handbag varieties across 10 distinct styles. Consumers have so far accepted these tactics from leading Italian and French luxury houses, with desirable ability and profitability both touching all-time highs. However, the long-term success of these brands is dependent on how the concept of luxury and exclusivity evolves over time. Social media and lifestyle selfie phenomenon have given rise to demand for ultra-exclusive experiences that existing luxury houses may not be able to provide. Online marketplaces for new and pre-owned products have significantly increased price and product transparency, which is potentially dangerous for an industry that achieves product margins as high as 90%. In 1856, a UK laboratory created a synthetic purple for the first time in history, which smashed the purple cartel overnight by allowing the dramatic expansion of supply at lower price points and thus widespread adoption by the masses. Equally, the large luxury brands... Cannot afford for their signature products to become common lest the consumer perceptions of the mark's exclusivity deteriorate. Balancing this with the brand's growth aspirations is essential for long-term brand health. Thus investors in the major brand houses should temper their expectations of ongoing rapid profit expansion. And finally, just looking at the technology fund and notable changes in the management team at the firm's or the fund's largest investment, and one of our largest investments across the fund. The firm, sorry, Alphabet, the holding company for Google. Co-founders Larry Prage and Sergey Bin, formerly CEO and President of Alphabet respectively, decided to step down from their operational roles within the organisation and hand over the reins to Sundar Pichai. Pichai had been the CEO of Google within Alphabet since 2015 and has been with the firm since 2004. Page and Bryn will remain on the board and as shareholders. But given the Google division, which includes YouTube and cloud computing, is by far the largest part of Alphabet, and Pichet was already running that, this management change is not as big a shift as it may initially appear. Essentially, this change is putting Pichai in charge of the capital allocation decisions across a number of Alphabet's more peripheral other bets, which include healthcare, autonomous driving, and drone delivery. These projects present exciting prospects, but typically have longer dated and more uncertain payoffs, which many investors are unwilling to ascribe value to and some simply consider the billions of dollars cumulatively spent on such projects as a waste of money. We're of the view that many of these projects likely do have real value and watch with interest as promising signs continue to build. Recently, a paper was published in the prestigious academic journal Nature showing Alphabet's AI systems were able to outperform radiologists in accurately interpreting mammograms, presaging a future where their systems may be able to significantly enhance clinicians' effectiveness in detecting breast cancer. Meanwhile, Waymo continues to make slow and steady progress in autonomous driving, now offering an increasing number of truly unsupervised driverless vehicles, which can be hailed by members of the public via the Waymo One app in Phoenix, Arizona. Partnerships and investment from industry also signal some of these early stage projects may be on the right track. Energy giant Shell, for example, recently took a stake in Alphabet's kite-based wind energy startup, Mechani while biotech company Gilead Sciences entered into contract with Alphabets Verily to investigate inflammatory autoimmune diseases. Of course, when pursuing such new ventures, there will invariably be failures, but we believe these other projects are largely being ascribed no or even negative value by the market and that the current share price can be more than justified by the core Google division, even acknowledging the regulatory scrutiny it's currently under. Its position in web search engines remains strong, YouTube is in a category of its own and there are increasing efforts to enhance and monetize its Google Maps asset and even its cloud computing business is a valuable, building a valuable position. Alphabet remains a core holding of the fund and indeed the firm, one that we believe should continue to provide attractive returns over the coming years. So for more information, please go to the website and, and read the quarterly report in full. It also includes uh, a brief insight on Australasia's best sporting team of 2019, an award that we present in conjunction with Gainline Analytics to recognize the best team in Australia and New Zealand across a range of team sports. The award seeks to recognize long-term excellence in team sport based on the belief that in order to achieve this a team must be well built or cohesive and it builds on work we've done in recent years. The winner this year is NRL's Melbourne Storm, which has made the finals in all but three of its 22 seasons in existence, making the grand final nine times. They um, were a deserved winner of this award, and again, there's more information on this in our quarterly report. Thank you very much for listening.